You're listening to The Served Up Show, a podcast that features inspiring beverage professionals and topic experts that share their passions through meaningful content. Your hostesses, Bridget Albert, is best known as the Market Fresh Mixologist, an industry mentor with over 25 years of experience. And I'm Julie Milroy, best known for my passion for leading change and helping others grow in their careers. Grab a cocktail and sit back. Let's learn how we can make a positive impact in our industry. Hey, y'all, it's Bridget here. From Italy to the USA, Livio Laurel's path is a testament to the transformative power of following one's passion. As a past national president of the USBG, He's not only elevated the craft of mixology, but has also paved the way for aspiring bartenders to achieve excellence through the acclaimed USBG Master Mixologist Program through his many books and also has created an amazing state-of-the-art bar well. To learn more, sit back, relax, grab yourself a Negroni, and enjoy this very special episode. Welcome to Served Up. I am so excited to have you on the show today. Thank you, Bridget. It's exciting to be on it. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. I wish that our listeners could see your face. You know, you and I have been friends for a very long time. And with that, you know, I know and understand that you have a very inspiring story to share with our listeners. So can you share with us a bit about your journey from your start in the hospitality industry in Italy? And then going on to becoming a very prominent figure in America's mixology, bartending, hospitality scene. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Yeah. So I'll share a a quick story with you all uh, that really, I think, started it all. When I was 12 years old, I attended a wedding. And at this wedding, my dad and his brother, I believe it was my Uncle Larry or it was my Uncle Roy. I don't remember. But they sidebarred and they went to the bar area of this big room where we were celebrating my cousin's wedding. And I kind of followed them and I sat at the stool at the bar and um, my dad and his brother, they just wanted to talk. Right. They wanted to catch up family reunion sort of a deal. And I just kept on talking over them because I was a kid. I was 12 and I was all over the place. And so in order to kind of get me to be quiet. Uh, my dad asked the bartender to make me something. And I'll never forget when the glass hits the bar top and then you hear the sound of the ice and then the bubbles went in and then the red syrup and then the cherry and then the squiggly straw. I'll never forget that moment. I think that was the moment when I said, I have no idea what this bartender just did, but whatever that is, I want to do that when I grow up. And so I think that's where it really all started. Uh, Fast forward, you become a teenager. And when you're a teenager, you know, priorities change a little bit. Uh, But when I was 17, the movie Cocktail comes out. And that kind of reminded me of a few of that incident. And from there, I just decided that uh, bartending slash hospitality was going to be my thing. 
I started uh, in 1992 in a little piano bar called Luna Chic, and the owner really put me to work doing everything, minus bartending. I was bar back. I was opening for the cleaning crew. I was just doing a whole bunch of stuff, and I love. I really enjoyed it. Um, so that's when I joined the IBIS, which is the Italian Bartender Association, and started what is pretty much a almost a six year journey. Uh, to um, learn bartending and learn hospitality in a very um, special way. So then I moved to a place called Valentino, and Valentino was my home for many years. Uh, The cool thing about Valentino was that you basically uh, did somewhat of a bespoke, uh, beautiful cocktail service from 11 p.m. to about 1 p- 1 a.m. in the morning. And then after that, that older crowd would leave. The piano player would kind of walk out and the DJ would come in and we would have a, a much younger, hipper crowd. And so I got to enjoy both sides of bartending. One was super bespoke, super, uh, you know, upscale. But then on the other side at 1.30 a.m., I was hopping behind the bar and just making drinks and having a good time, uh, you know, like a, a, a person in their 20s should be. Uh, from there, I moved to a few other places, but uh, the, one of which was the Dolce Vita. But then I think the highlight of my career was when I moved to America. And uh, I was working at a Sheraton hotel in Pasadena, and I received a phone call. Um, actually, I take that back. When I got home, my answering machine had a message from a lady by the name of Edie that said, hey, uh, Larry Rubo would like to interview you here in Vegas. Um, And there were two more messages on the answering machine. It looked like Vegas, uh, thanks to Francesco and thanks to a few other people, had had, uh, gotten the word that I was in the U.S. And one of them was the Venetian Hotel. The other one was New York, New York Hotel. And they all said, hey, come to Vegas. We want to interview you. I was somewhat broke at the time. So I, uh, the only one of the three that said, we'll fly you here was Southern. And so me being the loyal kind of person I am, well, if you take me to the ball, then I'm going to dance with you. So I really only took the Southern interview. And I knew very little about the industry. And I remember walking in and saying, hey, folks, I mean, I'm, I'm a bartender. I'm a hospitality person. It looks like you guys have a bunch of trucks and people with clipboards taking orders. How exactly am I going to be helpful? And then when they showed me the academy and what Francesco was doing and how uh, beverage and culinary driven the Southern was in Vegas, That's when I realized this was a new home. Um, It was hard, Bridget, honestly, to leave hospitality, especially the way they taught it to me in Italy. It was really special. We learned so many things about how to take care of your guests, including opening the newspaper for them at the page that we knew they liked to read. And just so many interesting things that I truly enjoyed. Because in, in, in the IBIS, really, they teach you how to bartend in hotels because hotels have that uh, international clientele where you have to kind of know a whole lot of things. 
uh, when I moved to America and I was just working in a, in a quote unquote regular bar, those skills weren't needed that much anymore. So I felt like it was a great opportunity to go work for Southern and perhaps uh, disperse those those learnings that I uh, that I held so dearly uh, and dispense them to other people. So hopefully that's it in uh, not much of a nutshell, but in a nutshell. Well, let's take it from, you know, really that move that you made from Italy to United States to pursue a new career, mm-hmm. still in hospitality, but just looks differently. Mm-hmm. Can you tell our listeners about your experiences and really some key milestones that led you to becoming very active in the United States Bartenders Guild and what led you to leadership within the USBG? Yeah, it's a really good question. So because I was a student of the IBIS in Italy, for me, um, no matter what country I was going to move to, I was going to find what was the IBA representative or what was the bartender group that I can join. And so I stumbled uh, upon the USBG in 1998, I believe, and I was still living in Italy, but I joined it as an overseas member. And so when I came to America, um, before the Sheraton incident, I was also working at a little Italian restaurant called Neal's. And at Neal's, all of a sudden, two gentlemen in red jackets show up at the bar. They shake my hand and they say, we are, uh, you know, president and vice president of the guild. These were the two Jose's, Jose Ancona and Jose Ruseco. And we just wanted to welcome you to the United States. It was one of the nicest things that anybody could do to somebody who just moved to a new country. And uh, granted, I had a few friends, but it was still a very uh, lonely time of my life. And it was just super, super nice. So I started attending the meetings uh, for the Guild, which I would have had it no other way. And realized that at that time, the USBG was struggling quite a bit. Um, Times had changed, but the Guild had not. Um, Bartending had become such a younger, hipper, more colorful thing in the 90s, right? In the 90s, everything was colorful. It was the disco era. But the Guild was still kind of just old suits, and it just did not speak to what was happening. Now, cocktails were still what they were. We know that that we had to wait a few more years to get uh, really that that cocktail renaissance to kickstart. Uh, but nonetheless, bartending was far more fun and, you know, put on a T-shirt and go sling drinks and have a good time. But the guild was not there. And uh, so I realized that the guild was struggling. And um, at what at some point they asked me to take over the educational part, because they felt like education was going to be super important. So I took on that task and it wouldn't, it would take me literally nine more years before we would actually launch the MA program. But that was my task for a while until in 2004 in Las Vegas, we have the um, WCC, the World Cocktail Competition, 52 countries. You know that story very well because I coordinated the museum, the first display of the Museum of the American Cocktail, and and you were incredibly uh, instrumental in all that, uh, as well as a few other folks that that really helped out. 
And so when that WCC was over, uh, the guild was struggling with finances really, really badly. It was an incredible event for everybody that attended it, except for the bank account of the actual guild. And so at that time, the guild was struggling quite a bit. And I was actually in Italy on vacation. And um, I think it was a hot potato and it was hard to figure out who was going to take over the leadership of the guild. But you all served me a, a, a good lesson because I remember that I was in Italy and we everybody was in Chicago uh, for a guild event. And in Chicago, you all elected me national president. So I remember Jacques uh, Bazidenhout sending me a text message and I'm on a beach somewhere uh, in Southern Italy. And Jacques goes, congratulations, Livio, you are the new national president of the USBG. So yeah, I'll stop. I'll pause right there. But that's, uh, that's how we, that's how it happened. And I remember the event in Chicago, it was a big cocktail competition and it was just so much fun. Um, as a past, you know, national president of the USBG, can you discuss really the organization's mission at that time and the impact that it was having on the bartending and hospitality community. Yeah, yeah. So at that at that time, really, um, it's funny. We, we we could say it's a organizational mission, but really, it was very grassroots. So it was, you know, a couple dozen bartenders that were all like minded and really wanted to do two things: um, a obviously dispense better knowledge of the cocktail, better knowledge of hospitality and the importance and relevance of a bartender and a great cocktail. Uh, and, you know, priority A2, if not A1, was to research the organization, to make sure that it stayed relevant because we did not know the history of the Guild, but we knew it was rich. We knew there was something there that needed to be discovered. And it was a pivotal time where either the guild was to disappear, uh, which could have been easier, right? Those couple dozen members, it would have been a lot easier for them to just start a new thing, whatever, the cocktail club of 19 of 2002 and go from there. But everybody rolled up their sleeves and really um, wanted to make sure that our purpose in the virtual room was to keep this organiz organization uh, alive. And it happened. It, it absolutely did happen. It was such a magical, magical time. Um, you know, something else, and you're very humble, Livio, because you are very well known for creating the Master Mixologist Accreditation Program. Can you tell us more about the program? And again, you know, the significance of it in its um, elevation of the hospitality sector. Uh, indeed, indeed. We felt like the term master mixologist was uh, already starting to be used and abused quite a bit. And so we had that going on. On the other side of that, we had this mission that developed years later, right, which was to basically create leader bartenders that would be that would promote uh, fine drinking, but do it in a very humble way. And we felt like the term master mixologist was going the wrong direction, not because of anybody in uh, specifically, but basically the, the press, the magazines, they always wanted to point out 
that the master mixologist was somewhat in some, in, for, in some way, shape or form better than the bartender. And so we figured, hey, let's, let's take advantage of this confusion and make sure that we design a program that is there to uh, educate the bartender, test them, give them the opportunity to uh, demonstrate that they have, uh, you know, incredible superior knowledge, but also make sure that everybody understands that once you become a master mixologist, you are to consider yourself and to promote yourself as a seed that just turned into a plant. Now that plant still needs to grow and, and at some point give fruit. So we wanted master mixologists to be you are start. This is your starting point. You've you've developed from a seed to a plant, but that plant still needs to bear fruits. So those fruits will come through many years of your service to the industry. Um, and why why did I feel that was important? Because in Italy we had the Capo Barman program, which is when I took. Um, that's why it took me almost six years to to quote unquote graduate that. And that really elevated the Italian bartender a lot. And we wanted to mimic it, but we also wanted to wanted to mimic it, uh, you know, the American way, with the way cocktailing occurs here versus how it occurs in, in Italy. And a quick sidebar, right? Remember, an Italian bar serves cappuccinos and croissants and, and uh, juices and all sorts of other things. Uh, whereas traditionally in America, a bar serves cocktails. And, and so the two styles of bartending are very different, unless, of course, we're both making Negronis. That's different. <laughs> oh, that's so true. Um, can you share some of the insights into the trends and developments that you have really have foreseen in the beverage industry? You mentioned Negroni, so I have to ask. Uh, <laughs> uh, the trends that I've seen? Um, well, I mean, I, I was just listening to the interview that you did with Julie Reiner, and, and she mm -hmm. hit the nail on the head, right? It, it, 15, 20 years ago, when you were doing fresh and you were doing craft and you were doing um, cocktails uh, from... Uh, from the spice out of the spice rack, things like that. That was a novelty. You were on the most cutting edge of the industry. Uh, today, it's almost safe to say that a, a 7-Eleven could do that for you or any little bar up and down the street. So it's incredible how something that is so common sense, but also something that was so special just a handful of years ago, today is just a common practice. Now, one of the trends that I see in, in, in America that I feel almost beg for a little more uh, distinction is the difference between craft and luxury, right? So craft means I am getting my hands dirty and crafting this for you, and I'm giving you all the uh, the theatrical part of making the cocktail. I'm going to press this lime right in front of you. Uh, I'm going to flame this peel right in front of you. Luxury delivers a very similar product, but it's more clean. It comes with, I almost liken it to, if you go to a craft mechanic shop, 
you can see the person with the wrench fixing your car right there in front of you, right? And they're fixing the car just as good as anybody else, of course. But if you go to a luxury shop and you pull in and they put you in a beautiful chair and a lounge, and all of a sudden your, your Lexus shows up beautifully fixed the same way it would have been fixed at the other shop and uh, ready to go, right? Nice and clean and polished. And so I see the trends probably of the next thing coming is a little more distinction between craft and luxury. They are not the same thing, although they are very similar. Now, that's a really great answer. And with that, you know, you are also credited with creating a cutting edge bar service well. We must talk about that. And we're talking about trends and how you're making life easier and smarter for the way that service is done. Yes, yes. I'm really excited about it, Bridget. I'm super, super excited. So um, in Europe, bars are set up differently than in America uh, because in, in Europe, again, a traditional bar will serve so many different things. It's the, the barista behind the bar is making the Negronis, but is also making the cappuccinos and f- pressing fresh juices and scooping ice cream on the cone. They, they just have a lot more going on, which begs for a different style of bar station. Uh, traditionally in America, um, most bars will mostly serve uh, alcoholic beverages. And so the stations are very different. When I moved to America, I really had a hard time adapting to the American cocktail station. Uh, It's brilliant. And I still stand by so many great ones that are out there. But I felt like there was also the need for the European style for very specific bars. And the things that were kind of weird to me about the American cocktail station uh, was that the ice was right below where you make the drink. And I'm like, doesn't everything spill in there? And it really does. Um, the crotch of the bartender is right in front of the pour spout. When the bartender reaches ahead, they're rubbing their crotch on a pour spout. Isn't there like a, I know there's a different way to do it because we don't do it that way in, in, in Europe, uh, right? And obviously the there is no craftsperson on the planet except the bartender that makes drinks away from their body. Uh, So if you're rolling sushi, repairing watches, if you're a woodworker, if you're a mechanic, everything you do, you do it close to your body. You don't do it 12 inches away. And most of the time, if not all the time, you're doing it at about 36 inches off the ground. You're not doing it at 42. So posturally, the bartender is handed this really uh, uh, hard card to deal uh, to play with because of the, the the positioning of the bar. And so in Europe, though, the ice bin goes to the side. Whether you're right-handed or you're left-handed, you'd scoop with one of your side hands, right? And so the, the, the Euro bar, which is the bar that I designed during, while I was, like everybody else, uh, bored and not much to do during the, the lockdown, uh, during the uh, the pandemic, uh, I basically designed an NSF uh, American uh, built cocktail station, or I call it a bar station, uh, that basically uh, kind of turns around a little bit things around. You still have your scupper rail on top at forty two inches, where you where you can make the drinks, 
but you have this additional prep area at 34 inches off the ground where you get, instead of just ice, you get a trash chute. So you're not walking away to throw the trash or throwing things from a distance. You get your dipper well where all your your um, your tools go into. You get an, a, a, re, a, a reset iced garnish area so that, again, you don't have the plastic garnish tub on top of the bar top. That was one of the other things that I always found a little interesting. Remember, the bar top is the guests as much as possible. As much as possible, the bar top is for the guests. Um, then you get a rinser and you get a, a drain board and you get a nice big prep area. You get a, a nook for some towels. All of that in exchange of what usually is just an ice bin. Uh, right. And so ice is great. Ice is important. It goes into 95% of the drinks out there, but ice is pretty much a one trick pony. It could only be ice. And so I moved things around. Now, what's happening in America is, which is awesome, right? Is now drinks are smoked and we put bubbles on them and we uh, put them in a barrel. So the need for more space for the person behind the bar uh, is necessary. And that's why my bar station, which by the way is called the Eurobar, you can find more info on eurobarstation.com kind of fixes some of those issues. And I'll take a break because I know that's a, a lot to think about there. You don't have to take a break. This is all about you today, Livio. Oh. <laughs> so I would, and I love that. And so, you know, for the listeners that are maybe starting a new career, right? Opening a barn restaurant. This is a great resource for those of you that own bars currently and you want to make your bartender's life a little more easier, you know, when you, when you can really support your staff in a way that makes them work smarter, not harder, your dollars go up. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah, for sure. And also think about this. I, I, I brought in a, a physical therapist from Vegas. And as you know, because we are a 24 hours mm -hmm. a day, seven days a week city, there are thousands of bartenders and this physical therapist, his name is Jimmy Greathouse. He has to help a lot of bartenders with all the bartender related issues, knees, lower backs, carpal tunnels, all those things. So I invited him to check out the Eurobar and he played with it for about an hour, just kind of going through the motions, asking me, so what does a bartender do and what, what's this and how does this happen and walk me through this. And he came back and he basically made a statement that because the the prep area of the Eurobar is not closer, it's super close to your body, uh, it really does reduce the effects that of the pain that goes to your lower back. Because think Amazing. about it. Amazing. Yeah, about it. If you're carrying a box and you're carrying it close to your body, it's a 10 pound box. But the minute you expand and the minute you make the box further, you put the box further away from your body, if you're still holding it, now that 10 pound box can become a 20 pound box. So the closer you're working to your cell, to your body, th the less work your lower back is making. So uh, I didn't, <laughs> I wasn't that smart. I would love to take credit for that. That just kind of happened because people much smarter than me made that observation. Well, thank you for creating something that saves bartenders' backs and feet. You know, it's just, a, it's an incredible, incredible 
um, thing. It really is. I'm um, super excited. Yeah, thank you. Very proud. I, I would love to talk about you as an author. Okay. You, you have two books and you authored them with a friend of, of, you know, a fellow celebrated beverage professional, Armando Rosario. You know, one of those is the 12 cocktails book, the 12 cocktails everyone needs to know. And the other one is beverage engineer. Can you talk about what motivated you to share your knowledge through writing and what do you hope your readers gain from your books? I love it. So we'll talk more about the 12 cocktails than the beverage engineer. The beverage engineer, uh, I'll start with it because it's the easier one. In essence, was a book that was designed for the hospitality expert that needs crisp, clean answers. And so it literally goes through every category of beverage. And the first part of it is literally your elevator pitch, right? Because hospitality experts need to always deliver a clean message to the table or at the bar without going into too many complex uh, issues, right? And so it starts with that immediate line of, hey, if somebody asks you this, this is your answer. But then below it, it goes through your typical history, manufacturing process, raw materials, um, classifications, and styles. So you can go through the entire book and just read the first uh, blurb of every paragraph and develop as a hospitality expert a quick answer to uh, a clean answer to what could consider consider to be complex questions from your guests. But as you read the book more, it helps you um, really uh, walk your guests through helping them make a decision. I love the beer program, the Cicerone program, because Cicerone basically means tourist guide. Um, and the beer Cicerone program kind of adopted the term and took it and made it their own, which is cool. But I love that because, yes, a a hospitality expert is basically the tourist guide of what that bar uh, and restaurant has to offer. And so this book kind of does that. Um, the 12 Cocktails was born for a whole different reason. And, and back then, Armando and I uh, were probably a little bit more feisty than we are today. Uh, but the feistiness and the need for the 12 Cocktails was because we were in an era in, I, I don't know, 03, 04, 05, where if you would walk into a Barnes and Noble store, remember those? Uh, or a, you'd walk into a bookstore and it was like, how to make a thousand cocktails. And to the right of it, it was how to make 2000 cocktails. And then to the right of that is how to make 3000 cocktails. And so those were the books that were selling. You're like, okay, do we write the book on how to make 4,000 cocktails? No, let's write the book on how to make 12 cocktails that teach you how to make 4,000 cocktails. And we also felt like the industry was, uh, I, mean, I think we all, everybody agrees that in the past 15 years, we've come a long way, not only in improving how we make drinks and the ingredients available, but we've also improved a little bit on how to um, make what we do a little bit more simple. And so we were in the era of 0405, where you were an expert bartender if you put a tea bag in a bottle of gin, uh, even if you didn't know how to make a gin and tonic. Because at that time, 
the magazines, the press, they wanted to see that stuff. They didn't care about the bartender down the street that was making a gin and tonic that was exceptional, delicious, craft properly and delivered with a smile. So the 12 cocktails was like, forget the tea bag, please. Let's really get down to the basics of delicious cocktails. And we're not going to lecture you through uh, all this uh, data. We're going to teach you 12 cocktails. And those 12 cocktails are going to teach us all the fundamentals of the cocktail world. And so when you think about it, the Shirley Temple, the gin and tonic, the um, the Negroni, the Spritz, the Shandy, the Pina Colada, the Mai Tai, the Sangria, uh, the Mojito, the Irish Coffee, and the Cosmopolitan, or each one of those cocktails represent a family of cocktails, right? And it's not historical because, yeah, the Cosmo came after so many other drinks. But if you learn how to make a Cosmo, you really learn a whole other series of cocktails if you learn how to make a, a gin and tonic, right? Think about it. Gin and tonic, vodka tonic, rum and soda, rum and coke, Moscow mule, uh, dark and stormy. These are all the same drink. Um, and so the book really walks you through it that way. It's only 52 pages, so you could literally read it uh, at, at, at a, uh, in a very short hour and a half, but it's packed with stuff and it's my pride and joy. I love it. I have a copy. It's wonderful. So I'm glad that you wrote it. I really am. Looking back on your journey, what are some of the most rewarding moments and accomplishments that stand out to you? Oh, wow. Oh, that's a good one. Um, I don't know that I've taken notes much on that. Let me think about it. Um, I, I do think that the... God, there's so many of them, Bridget. I, I kind of just, I, I think I just kind of park them and move on. But seeing what the, I mean, you should be proud, super proud of this too. Seeing what the Museum of the American Cocktail has turned into, right? Remember when when you and I were unpacking boxes in the Rivera Hotel in Capri Room 101 and 102, and and just like figuring this out and you had a picture i remember of your ancestors whatever that one was you got to explain that one to the to the people listening but we were doing that and now i mean it's it's part of a world renowned uh, cultural organization i think that's awesome um but there's so many other ones what's happened to the usbg i mean when we started with the USBG, I remember specifically uh, a, a, a rum supplier saying the old regime of the USBG came to us. They, they talked to us for two hours about how great the organization used to be. And then when we asked them, OK, well, we really want to help you. How could we help? They said, well, can we get a case of rum? And so from, from being an unknown organization to being a, a, a world-renowned organization where now just about every major liquor company has earmarked an annual budget to work with the USBG, that's huge. Those are the little things that make me happy. I think that that is absolutely incredible. Um, finally, could you leave our listeners with a memorable story 
or anecdote from your career that captures really the essence of your passion for mixology and hospitality? Yeah, I'm just sorry that this one gets me all excited. So it might not be short, Bridget. I'm sorry. I'm a little talk. I'm, I'm a little talky today. Um, but so then my book that's coming out next is called The Liquid Legacy. It's the USBG Liquid Legacy. Um, what's incredible about this book here is that it all started from a picture. And if I I have a dear friend in in Florence, Luca Picchi, and Luca explains in his book, The Negroni Cocktail, that he was just going through some old pictures one day and he found a picture of a sign that said Cazzoni on it. And Cazzoni was the bar where the original Negroni was invented. It was then renamed Giacosa, but at the when it was when the Negroni was invented, it was invented at the Cazzoni bar. That one small little picture inspired him to document what to me is not only the best documented cocktail on the planet, but arguably the damn most delicious one you'll ever have. Um, but that was just a story, right? One day I was just window shopping on eBay and I come across this picture of six bartenders and they're on a plane, like they're ready to board a United Airlines plane. They all have a weird patch on and they're holding on to these cups. It's really strange. And it was just talking to me. That, uh, that picture inspired me to kind of understand who those people were, uh, why they were there, what were they doing, why were they breathing passion in their eyes. And that story needed to be told. Um, life is always full of so many interesting curveballs and, and, and good ones and, and sometimes not so good ones. And it turned out that these folks were the original founders of what then became the USBG. So it was like, come on, of all the people on the planet that this picture was talking to on eBay, right? Uh, furthermore, eBay has 7 zillion products. How on earth did that day that picture come to me? Uh, still needs to be understood. But that inspired my book. So if in a nutshell, I were to say what really what gets me going is I'm an old soul because I was born from a 52 year old father. And um, so in my house, uh, I I've always been intrigued by what older people and by what our ancestors did. And so if there's ever something that is a, an important story from the past that needs to be told, I'm the first one there to try to uncover it and bring it to the world. Because I always know that what our ancestors did is always something super fascinating. So if I had to pick for a living, you know, uh, obviously a passionate and proud uh, employee of Southern Glaciers and book writer and bar creator and all that stuff, if I had to, to, to pick where I see my the my 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 uh, retirement years. It's researching what our ancestors did. I love that, and I'm so I'm so excited for your book to come out. We'll have to have you back on the show when it does. We can talk all about it. Um, Livio, I just want to thank you for for being on Served Up for sharing your very important story that really helped to craft the landscape of 
hospitality in America. You were a huge part of that as you continue to be. So I just want to wish you just some great health and a lot of peace. Cheers to you. And to you too, Bridget. And thank you for everything you do because Served Up is just one of the many examples of the beautiful things that you bring to this world and much happiness to you. And I, and I since we are going to see each other in a couple of days, I just can't wait to give you a big hug. And obviously, and obviously a big hug to all our listeners. Yeah. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Served Up is brought to you by Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits. Produced by Zunu.online. Music by We Kill the Lion can be found on Spotify. Make sure to subscribe to be notified of future Served Up episodes. Cheers. Cheers.